Welcome to season four of The Empty Chair, a podcast from Penn South Africa. I'm your host, Nadia Davids, and I'm the current president of Penn SA. Every year on the 15th of November, Penn centers throughout the world mark the day of the imprisoned writer. And at each event, there's an unoccupied chair. This chair symbolizes those who cannot be with us because they have been jailed for their writings. And it is from the symbol that our podcast takes its name. Each of our episodes is dedicated to a writer in prison or a writer who has been subject to some form of abuse by the state. And at the end of each episode, our guests pay them tribute, offering a message of solidarity and thanks, sometimes in the form of a poem or a quote. In this episode, we stand in solidarity with Belarusian journalist and poet Andrei Alexandrov and journalist Irina Slobina. Andrei and Irina have been behind bars in Belarus since January 2021. They were detained and imprisoned for their defense of human rights. Andrei is one of Belarus's most prominent independent journalists. He is the founder of JournalBy.com and has worked for a wide range of Belarusian media as well as the leading media freedom programs for Article 19 and Index on Censorship in the UK. Andre is now facing charges of treason to the state. He's alleged to have paid the fines of journalists and protesters detained during the pro-democracy process of 2020, and if convicted, he could face up to 15 years in prison. Irina works as a journalist and is Andre's partner. She was also detained on suspicion of financing protest activities and has been charged. She is facing up to three years in prison. Penn South Africa and Penn International joins Index on Censorship and Article 19 in calling for Andre and Irina's immediate and unconditional release. You can read more about the intricacies of their case in the show notes. In this episode, we're so delighted to welcome Associate Professor Kronipa McQuenna, who chairs a conversation with Dr. Rebecca Hall and Richard Cunningham about resistance and revolts in their graphic novels. They discuss legal histories, approaches to the history of oppression from the witness box, working with archival records, pedagogy, and the relationship between illustration and written narratives. Kronipa McQuenna has worked and studied in both the US and South Africa. She received her PhD from the University of Cape Town in 2005 and is currently an associate professor and researcher at Weiser at Witts University. Between 2006 and 2015, she taught in the anthropology department at Columbia University in New York City. She has published articles in numerous South African and international journals. Her first book is titled Magema Fuse, The Making of a Kolwa Intellectual and she's currently working on a book about African men in military and police service in South Africa. I was a reader, even as a child. My mom was a librarian. I absolutely cannot understand how you can decide that a book is not appropriate for someone who's literate, because that's the only passport that you need to enter a book. Rebecca Hall is an historian, activist, lawyer, educator, and the grandchild of formerly enslaved people. She is the author of Wake, The Hidden History of Women-Led Slave Revolts. She has a PhD in history from Berkeley and has taught at UC Santa Cruz, Berkeley Law, Berkeley's History Department, and as a visiting professor of law at the University of Utah. She writes and publishes on the history of race, gender, law, and resistance, as well as articles on climate justice and intersectional feminist theory. One of the first 
questions they queried the database was, how many revolts were there on slave ships? And the answer came back as one in 10, which surprised everyone because basically it's an act of suicide. And scholars weren't expecting that high of a number. And then the next question they asked themselves is, what was the difference between the ships that had revolts and the ships that didn't have revolts? And the only statistically significant difference was that the more women on a ship, the more likely to be a revolt. Richard Cunningham is a Peter Maritzburg-born scholar and author who lives in Mexico City. Since graduating from the universities of Cape Town and Cambridge, he has worked for South African civil society organizations like Equal Education, The Bookery, Ndifuna Ukwazi, and the London publisher Slightly Foxed, as well as the climate training organization Make Tomorrow. In 2021, after seven years of artistic collaboration, Richard published the graphic history All Rise, Resistance and Rebellion in South Africa. We have obviously some remarkable historical struggle figures who've been written about so much that it almost feels like the history is all about them. And what I read in these court records was that there were truly extraordinary acts of resistance, but also truly extraordinary lives that have been completely missed by written history until now. And their acts of resistance weren't necessarily as dramatic as you may think. Thank you for joining us in this conversation. Welcome to episode four of season four of Penn South Africa's The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. I'm Shoni Pamukwena, and I'm thrilled to be in conversation with Rebecca Hall and Richard Cunningham. Both chose to approach the history of oppression from the witness box, as it were. Could each of you begin by explaining why this type of history is important? What does this history say about the law and those whose jobs it is to safeguard it? What does it mean to tackle history's injustice from the perspective of a formal institution, such as a court of law, or from the pages of judicial reports and courtroom dramas. <laughs> Go ahead, Richard. I, I'm interested in your answer because my work has never been framed like this and I've never thought about it in this context. So I, I'm curious about what you have to say. And unfortunately, I have not read your book, although it's in the mail. <laughs> I just didn't get here. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. That's very kind. <laughs> I, I, I have read Wake and I'm a huge fan. When I was invited on this panel, I heard your name for the first time and I immediately bought it and I read it in one sitting. It's really, it's an incredible book. But I'm happy to, to start us off on this question. So, Tlonipa, I think that the legal history of any country really says something about how that country's society has been shaped. And in All Rise, I chose the period loosely known as the Union Years from 1910 to 1948, which was in many ways the kind of adolescence of South Africa's statehood. And that really comes through strongly in the judicial records from that period. Because the government, the white government, was trying to sort of establish the country to be taken seriously internationally. And it was doing that on the backs of working class people and particularly people of color. And as a result, there were these fault lines running through society at that time. And where resistance cases emerged and they ended up in court, uh, there's a lot of valuable material there to learn from a historian's perspective. And I'm going to say a, a little bit later, I'll talk a bit more about the sort of unexpected results that emerged from those cases and which I looked at in my book. But just to say that there were surprises and 
that's because the law itself offered opportunities and sometimes ambiguities that could be exploited or taken advantage of by defendants or by uh, appellants in certain cases. But the fact of them being court records, of them being judicial documents, on the one hand, obviously, they had to be approached with extreme caution. They're just riddled with biases and distortions. But from a purely practical point of view, they were, it was thanks to these institutions that we have any idea of these stories, that we have something to work with as, in my case, author and the artist that I, that I worked with. Uh, also challenging, of course, is that, that legal documents tend to be dry, they tend to be pompous, they can be impenetrable, which it doesn't make them easy terrain for creativity. But I think that the graphic medium, uh, which is obviously what Rebecca and I have chosen, has a sort of a unique ability to allow an historian to kind of chart a, a course through these challenges and piece together to revive a story, a true story, in a way that's not one-sided, in a way that brings texture and color where it would otherwise be extremely painfully dry. And also that sort of leaves the reader with, with space to make their own conclusions. Yeah, that's interesting. So for folks who don't know, my book, Wake, The Hidden History of Women-Led Slave Revolts, tells the story of women's involvement in leadership in revolts in 18th century British America, so the 1700s, during the Middle Passage on slave ship voyages and also in New York City, a revolt in 1708 and 1712. And uh, it also tells the story of me doing that research. It was for my dissertation. So it, it actually tells the story of my research process and the challenges that I face and looking also at understanding how in you know the United States we live in the wake of slavery, what that means for current issues. And I have a PhD in history. I also have a law degree from Berkeley. I don't practice law anymore. <laughs> but in my book, I look at different kinds of court records and also at statutes and regulations relating to the slave trade. So for me, court records are basic, almost the only way to access the lives of enslaved women in this time period, right? So in the book, what I do is I look, for example, there is a trial record related to the revolt in 1712 in New York City. And the record itself is <laughs> very interesting. And a big part of the book is trying to break down what's going on, what that says about the power of slave control and instituting and maintaining a slave society and how one could possibly recover the agency of these enslaved women in this in this early period. Thank you both for those answers. So just going on from that particular issue about the usefulness of legal records is the second question um, that I'd like you to think about or talk about. And that is that the popular understanding is that graphic novels are for teenagers and young adults and that their purpose is mostly entertainment. So how has writing a graphic history changed your own relationship with graphics and the use of images in storytelling? Would you write another graphic history? Yeah, I hope that common ideas are shifting. Although I have nothing, I think teenagers and young adults need to be reached and I have no objections to entertainment. But I think of the medium of the graphic narrative as this really powerful way 
to do history, to write history, to recover history, and to share it. Because there are things you can do in this medium that you can't do in other mediums. So for example, part of it has to do with, I mean, there are many things, but the one thing that I would like to talk about is that this general format of this kind of sequential art is that you have panels, and then you have the space between panels, which are known as the gutter. So the relationship between panels and gutter can be really generative for creating both an emotional response and involvement, and also to engage the people who are reading it. And the graphic medium allows the reader to almost co-create the narrative because unlike a movie, I mean, if you want to see every frame of something, you go to a movie, right? Sequential art is about carefully constructing a narrative, choosing what images you're going to show, how they relate to each other. And the reader actually does a lot of work, whether they know it or not, in the gutter between the panels. They are involved in creating the story. They choose what to read, how to read it, what order, how much time to spend on it. And it causes like this level of engagement that's very different from watching a movie or even reading prose. Yeah, I don't know what you think, Richard, but... Uh, I completely agree. Oh, and would I do it again? Absolutely. I'm working on one right now. (laughs) It's Taking Freedom, Black Women, The Civil War and Reconstruction. And I've been researching it for a couple of years, and I have a Harvard Radcliffe Fellowship starting in the fall to work on actually writing the script and storyboarding it. Wow. You're going to be working with, it's Ugo, right? Or Hugo? Yes, absolutely. Uh, cool. Fantastic. Well, I second everything you just said, obviously, Rebecca. I mean, I think the stigma that the graphic medium continues to have is very unfortunate. But I also feel like we're sort of living through a rise in the genre in its different shapes and forms. And I think it's disappointing, speaking as a South African here, but I'm sure people from most or all countries can relate to this, that for so long, our history, our learning of history has been dominated by text-only books with a, with a few photographs here and there, maybe. It's not that I think that any of those books should necessarily be replaced, but I think that I just wish that historians and other authors of nonfiction and even novelists were producing them in equal measure text only and graphic books, because I think they attract, I don't know about which audience is bigger, but they do attract different audiences. And uh, graphic medium oftentimes attracts a younger audience. And speaking purely subjectively, I actually think that the combination of picture and words for many reasons, including the reasons Rebecca's just said, has greater potential to sort of fire the imagination and help us see the world in new ways. So I really hope that my book is a sort of small contribution to that. And that we continue to see new creative graphic works appearing right. everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that I want to add is that in Wake, there's a lot of historiography and historical method in Wake and showing the historian's craft, like what historians do and how they do it and how they research, but also craft narratives. And what's been amazing since this book came out, it came out last June and the paperback's coming out this coming June, is I was not expecting this wide range of people who are interested. I mean, it's being taught in graduate school, college, high school. I've met with a lot of high school students, and they're all intrigued by actual the historical method. They didn't know what it was. They were excited to see it. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know how you would do that in a different medium. Just to say, the way that your book breaks genres and approaches the revival of obscure history and also the process of reviving it is truly groundbreaking. 
I wish I had read it before I started my book because I think I would have done it in a different way oh, yeah. <laughs> with that inspiration. Uh, but in response to the last part of the question about would I do another one? Absolutely. And actually, the more I read uh, books like yours, also the books by Marcelo de Salete, the Brazilian, who's written books about slaves in, in Brazil, in colonial Brazil, with very, very sparse sources and the techniques that he uses and the techniques that you used, um, I'm very, very excited about trying an even more obscure period of history to, to explore uh, the possibilities there. Okay, those were brilliant answers to the question. I guess both of you are basically telling us that this is only the first installment and there are, there are more to come. Then moving on to the next question. So in your book, Rebecca, in Wake, the starting point is a revolt in 1770. And the narrative is about the search for other revolts at sea organized by African captives. By contrast, Richard, in All Rise, the starting point is almost like a surfeit of neglected and filed cases in the basement of the Supreme Court of Appeal. How does the absence and presence of records change the way that, as an author, you imagined the stories that you eventually chose to tell? Well, to answer this, I think it's probably instructive for me to actually very briefly refer to two stories in my book, because the thread through the book is resistance, but the context of each act of resistance and the court case that ensued is quite different. And that's partly because of the sources that were available to the artists. The first covers a very dramatic story over a few months in 1922, when you know those people who know about South African history will know that thousands of white gold miners in Johannesburg took up arms and in a revolt against their employers and the government. And uh, over, the, over the months that followed, the judicial processes yielded tens, if not hundreds of thousands of pages of court papers. And these are dominated by transcripts. So it's just this candy store for a researcher. So I had a lot to work with for that particular story. And actually, the challenge unusually was that the difficulty was cherry picking and not being overwhelmed and not being too precious, coming from a sort of a rigorous perspective of including detail that actually wasn't important for the story. And here, the artists, some in particular, were very, very helpful to me. They said, Rich, these words, are they really necessary? And they've interrogated me. And I, as I worked through the book, I realized more how sparse the text can be and just leave the illustrations to work their wonders. By contrast, there's another story about a woman called Helena Di Todi, who was a black woman living in a township in Pretoria in the 1920s. And she decided to resist a woman's night pass law by standing alone outside a police station late at night. She was arrested. There was a court case uh, that resulted. And because she was black, because she was a woman, she was only given a few minutes in the courtroom, unlike those white gold miners. And in fact, the artist, Dada Kanisa, and I only had 109 words to work with, really. Beyond that, there were some PhDs that lightly mentioned her, but that was it. We had a very different approach because of these sparse source materials. And we, we turned to memoirs, we turned to paintings, we turned to all sorts of things in order to reconstruct the milieu in a reliable way. And as challenging as this was at times, it made me realize just how kind of unexpected the research process can be and rewarding because the sources aren't always what you think they will be. And hopefully it may change the rhythm of the story. It may change the relationship between the text and words, but I think it can be an equally valuable story based on limited sources. 
Yeah. <laughs> My work is all about painfully limited sources and also looking at more standard sources from strange angles in order to try to recover some of these stories. So to give an example, in the revolt, the slave ship in 1770 that you referred to. So, you know, in the United States, the basic, the historiography about women and slave revolts is basically that women weren't involved in revolt. And it's a very frustrating and very sticky historiography. It's really hard to kind of get people to let go of it. So as an example, that's crucial to that revolt that I was discussing in the book, the, I think they started in the 90s, kind of at the beginning of the internet, these historians of the transatlantic slave trade created an online database and compiled research from over 36,000 slave ship voyages and made the database searchable. And one of the first questions they asked, they queried the database was, how many revolts were there on slave ships? And the answer came back as one in 10, which surprised everyone because Basically, it's an act of suicide, and scholars weren't expecting that high of a number. And then the next question they asked themselves is, what was the difference between the ships that had revolts and the ships that didn't have revolts? And the only statistically significant difference was that the more women on a ship, the more likely to be a revolt. And then they immediately dismissed their own findings, saying, but we know that women weren't involved in this type of resistance. But I didn't know that. And one of the things, you know, that I looked at is a lot of regulations of the slave trade in the UK when I went to the UK to do this research. And, you know, it's important for people to understand that the slave trade was a huge business. And like any business, it was highly regulated. And there were actually regulations for how ships were to be operated. And relating to this was that when the ship was on the coast of Africa, everybody was below deck and in chains. But when the ship left the coast of Africa, women were unchained and brought on deck. And so they had greater mobility, and that's where the weapons were kept. So my goal was to look at, you know, slave ship captain's logs to try to find descriptions of revolts. And there's this other weird angle, which is that the reason why these slave ship captains kept such detailed reports on revolts is for insurance purposes, because these slave ships were insured by like Lloyds of London and et cetera. And one of the provisions was insurance against the insurrection of cargo, right? And so in order to file those claims, they had to document the revolts. And so being able to use that weird angle of insurance and slave trade <laughs> regulations, I was able to recover stories of women who led revolts on, on slave ships. And the other thing I just wanted to say really quickly about this is that the issue of absence and gaps in the record has everything to do with how I tell stories in Wake. I'm trying to create a methodology, kind of like a Black feminist methodology, for capturing the shape of absence, right? Because absence has a shape. It's related directly to how structures of domination work. And, and by sort of working on recuperating the shape of absence, it's a way to recover these women's stories. And the graphic medium is perfect for this because a lot of the methodology of sequential art and the graphic medium is working with shapes and absences, you know, and how to construct them in a way to tell a narrative. I think that's a very important point about how does one shape an absence, because I think even in the stories that Richard was telling, you know, we know very little, for example, about how 
the people in South Africa who were indentured laborers, so Asians who were brought to South Africa as indentured laborers. That's one of the huge absences in South African history. In fact, you have to look very hard in South African history to find their story. So, Rebecca, you may be interested to know that, in fact, in South Africa, the first time that we even had plantations in the history of South Africa was actually with indentured laborers who were brought to work on the sugarcane plantations. And they were brought from different parts of... South Asia, right. Yeah, from South Asia. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that difference that in South Africa, it took several decades before the sort of mass use of human labor and indentured labor took place. And then those people were denied rights of citizenship. So I hope this will connect nicely to the next question that I have for you, which is that in both books, there is a central thread of rebellion and resistance. What do these words mean when they are translated into graphic images? How, for example, do you capture the horror of the slave auction? Or alternatively, how do you capture the emotional costs of being separated from your parents, for example, because they are deported as illegal immigrants in the case of South Africa's Asian community? So for me, I am entirely uninterested in the horrors of slavery. I'm interested in retrieving and holding up stories of resistance and resilience of the African-American community. And the other thing, when you ask specifically about what these words mean, I actually don't like the term rebellion, and I use the word revolt. It has to do with the way rebellion is framed as this sort of rebellion in the face of valid authority, right? Like, you know, teenagers rebelling, or I had to read a lot of John Locke in law school. There's this idea of like, what's in the realm of the political and what's not. And so rebellion is something that is not in the realm of political. And so I use the term revolt specifically. But when I talk about not being interested in the horrors of of slavery, that term horrors of slavery, it's like it's everywhere. And there are a bunch of things about it that I think are problematic and that aren't useful for what we need today. And part of it has to do with this concept of pornotroping, where these images that are repeated of like black pain and torture and rape and all of these things, not only is it not necessary, it becomes almost a kind of racist pornography. And so I don't want to participate in that. And so an example of that and how that impacted like a creative decision was in the book, I talk about a revolt in 1708 in New York, led by this woman whose name I could never recover. She's only referred to as the Negro fiend. And, you know, she's captured and convicted and she's burned at the stake. And Hugo and I, I mean, there was no way I was going to show her being burned at the stake. So the way we portrayed it is we saw the faces of the people who were forced to witness it. And that was a very intentional decision of not trying to participate in that kind of pornotroping. And in terms of the sort of other issue about the horrors of slavery, I'm not saying slavery wasn't horrible. That's not the point. I think that we know that part. What we don't know is the resistance and the resilience, especially of enslaved women. But I think when I've seen how people have connected with this book, a lot of people, you know, in the United States, a lot of uh, Black people are just like, oh my God, why do we have to keep talking about slavery? You know, I don't want to talk, you know, there's, I can tell them exactly why we need to keep talking about it because it shapes so many features of life in the United States today. But I think when people understand that the project is about resistance and re- resilience, 
then they're drawn to it. I did this talk for like a hundred teenagers in, in New Orleans who are reading the book in a book club. And one of the students asked this incredible question where he said, so, you know, Dr. Hall, you wrote a comic book, you know, and, and, you know, comic books are a lot about superheroes and like, who's the superhero in your book? And it took me a minute. I paused and I was like, black people are the superhero in this book. Great answer. I don't have much to add to that. In terms of the way that acts of resistance are portrayed in my book, I relied heavily on the artists. I wanted them to feel that with the context, the canvas was theirs. And they chose to approach it in very different ways. Following from what you just said, Rebecca, about not being interested in the horrors of slavery, sort of the flip side of that is being conscious of um, glamorizing maybe the resistance. And, mm-hmm. and I was very conscious of not doing that. And so were the artists to different degrees. Because in South Africa, we have obviously some remarkable historical struggle figures who've been written about so much that it almost feels like the history is all about them. And what I read in these court records was that there were truly extraordinary acts of resistance, but also truly extraordinary lives mm-hmm. that have been completely missed by written history until now. and their acts of resistance weren't necessarily as dramatic as you may think. And I didn't want to fall into that trend of sort of reviving a person in a way that kind of went beyond what they really were, just for the sake of, Mm -hmm. if there's a particular confrontation between workers and police, say, I didn't want to, and the artist was, we don't need to make this a full-blown page with, with, uh, it's violent. Often the acts of resistance were very subtle. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, a woman standing on a street corner. And the way that you portray that through the graphic medium can be approached from so many different directions. And I actually, I live in Mexico and I spend a lot of my time teaching English literature and language. And where possible, I always try to use graphic books in my teaching. And I find it fascinating to see young people analyzing graphic work, because just like I remember studying literature myself, you see, you read between the lines, but here you're actually noticing the techniques of the artist, the use of lettering, the breaking of frames into the gutter, which you mentioned earlier, things like that, which are no less sophisticated, I think, and they open up a new sort of realm of creativity. So I think if anyone's looking for truly explosive visual representations of resistance in my book, they're going to be disappointed. But that was very deliberate. I think that's a really important point, Richard. The problem with what you were describing, Richard, about this sort of holding up these narratives of these individual people who resist, we have that in the States also, of course, right? I mean, we have Rosa Parks. We have, although the story about her, she was just tired one day and sat down when in fact she was organizer and had been for decades. Or, you know, people talk about the Nat Turner revolt. Are there these, I'm so not interested in these sort of great stories of, and so my focus is more on very bottom up types of histories. And I am cautioned by the problem when you tell stories of resistance, you can, you can ally to the actual person and the complexity of their life. And I don't want to do that. But I'm also on a mission to focus on resistance because it is desperately needed for people to understand, you know, how change happens through these bottom up ways, because I think people get almost lobotomized by this traditional history book history where, you know, very top down, like, oh, Lincoln freed the slaves and Martin Luther King had a dream, you know, but I do try to watch for trying to preserve complexity as well. 
I think both your answers about the sort of pedagogical potentials of graphic novels link to my next question, which is about curricula, because in both South Africa and the United States, there are ongoing debates about changing school and university and college curricula. How does your work or your books function as pedagogical tools? Could you envision yourself teaching the book to primary school students? I think this is more the case in the United States, where sometimes they ban books simply because they think they are age inappropriate. Um, Or would you prefer to imagine teaching your graphic histories at a higher level? Or do you not particularly care about that particular pedagogical debate about school curricula and college curricula and what can and cannot be included? I care very deeply about this movement to ban the teaching of history. And it's not just about things being age inappropriate, which is certainly something that needs to be interrogated and investigated. But the other thing that I think the bigger issue is the move across the country to ban books, you know, any books that talk about race or talk about the LGBTQ community or talk about history of race um, because they say it causes discomfort for the students. It's like, which students are you talking about? You know, you're talking about white students. And it's in the guise of like critiquing critical race theory, which, you know, none of this is. So I care very deeply about it. It's really a problem. I mean, I, and this is part of the problem about being a historian, is that you can tell when the news is not good. And the United States is moving very quickly towards fascism. And this is a very common historical technique, and it's very brutal happening now. They've, you know, not just in schools, but material is being removed from public libraries, which is very scary. But I care a lot about, and also big picture I care about, or maybe smaller picture, I I definitely care about teaching and curriculum. Here, when we use the term primary... I think is not the same as in the United States. When we hear, if you say primary education, that actually means grades K through six. We talk about high school as secondary and then college as post-secondary. But in any case, so I have been working on curriculum with a team of high school teachers on how to teach Wake. And I feel like high school teachers write the best curriculum, so that I'm very happy for their help. And it's going to be available on my website in advance of the paperback, so people can look at that. And in terms of who it should be targeted to, whoever's interested, you know, whoever it speaks to. And I feel like this has been a learning experience for me to see. I was in Norway a couple months ago at a literary festival, and I was interviewed on stage by three ninth graders. They were incredible. So I, whoever it speaks to. Yeah, and from a South African perspective, Philippa, I think you probably know more than me about the debate going on about the curriculum in South African high schools. I just remember my own experience. I chose history as a subject at high school in the 90s in KwaZulu-Natal. And wow, we covered the exact same period that I've covered in All Rise. And all I remember, well, I don't even remember, but I have a vague recollection of facts and figures and some grainy photographs of Jan Smuts and a few other white statesmen, some election results maybe. And I had absolutely no sense that the stories that would end up being in my book that were happening at the very same time were taking place, not even in the background of those textbooks. And I really hope that South African high school history students today uh, have a different experience. I suspect that it's better, but it's 
not what it could be. And I think that incorporating graphic books into, you know, as part of the set works would go far, especially with the new generation of, of bite-sized visual media that, that we're living with. I think it would be incredibly valuable. So actually, that was front of mind when I was writing and preparing All Rise and working with the artists. I was thinking about high school students. I was thinking about young adults. So therefore, I don't think my book for primary school, I don't think, but as Rebecca says, whoever it speaks to, and I, th I think if it's written for primary school children, absolutely, it should be used in their schools. Yeah, that question was also a personal one because I was a reader, even as a child. My mom was a librarian and uh, she used to take me at that time. So my mom used to teach library science at black colleges and she used to just take me into the library and I used to pick whatever book I wanted to read. And my mom never told me that there were books for children and books for adults. So I would read like Alice Walker at like the age of 10. And I, I don't think I understood at the time what I was reading. So there's a bit of a personal story to that because I say I'm the daughter of a librarian. So I never learned that there were books for grown-ups and books for children. So I was shocked when I grew up and then people would be like, oh, that's a bit grown-up for you. And I'd be like... <laughs> Well, if I can read it, why is it grown up? Maybe it's exactly. grown up for you. Exactly. But not for me. Mm -hmm. um, that was like just my own sense of, I absolutely cannot understand how you can decide that a book is not appropriate for someone who's literate, because that's the only passport that you need to enter a book is that you are literate. And once you are literate, you can, you can read whatever you want. So I've never understood people's antagonism towards books. So the next question is about the law in the in sort of uh, huge quotation marks. You know, the fate of the law is different in each book. While it may be said that in Wake, the law is on balance, benefiting the slaveholding system, the case is not so clear in All Rise. How do we judge these differing histories of the judiciary and its role in the upholding of unjust laws and policies? It's not on balance. It's entirely <laughs> designed to institute a slave society and create property in, in human beings. So I almost don't know how to address the question in terms of how it applies to, to, to my research, other than how the law is entirely implicated in the creation of race-based chattel slavery. And one of the things that, as an example, one of the important ways that that was done in British America is that in various British American colonies, laws were passed in creating chattel slavery. And all those laws, they basically created two genders of women, you know, white women who give birth to heirs of property and black women who give birth to property by creating laws that said that your legal status as a piece of property was for life and it was race-based and it passed through the mother. That was sort of the function of that law. And it still profoundly impacts how Black women are seen in the United States today in terms of this sort of almost subhuman status, because these issues have never been addressed. I mean, I know truth and reconciliation has not exactly been ideal in South Africa, but there hasn't even been an effort by any means to do that. So I'm very much interested in how law, whether statutes, judicial cases, how they instantiate these institutions that turn human beings into property. 
Yeah, from my side, this is a tricky question to answer, mainly because of the wording. I'm very, very conscious about the fact that when I speak about the law and the opportunities, the unlikely opportunities that it gave people of color, uh, working class people under the colonial apartheid legal systems, I have to tread very carefully because I, it can often it seem like I'm insinuating that it was that it was a, a level playing field. Absolutely not. On the contrary, but there were rare instances where unlikely people prevailed, such as Helena de Todi. So you ask yourself, how? How on earth, in this systemic racist society in the 1920s, did a black woman living in a township prevail at the highest court in the country? So it begs the question, and I think the answer to this question, which people like Lonipa and uh, Judge Edwin Cameron have helped me understand, is that this was not because of the judges in the room, because they happened to be progressive. No, it was because they were deeply committed to the law. And every now and again in the law, there are these gaps, these loopholes, these ambiguities. And if a litigant's legal team is good enough, they can prevail through those gaps. And actually, Flonipa, I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to read what you wrote about this very question in the foreword. For those who don't know, Clonipa wrote one of the forwards in my book. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So this, I'm just going to read one paragraph where she addresses this. No amount of platitudes can soften the blows that many felt when the justice system affirmed unjust laws and regulations. Yet, what these graphic stories show is that even when it was darkest, the law offered a refuge against unmitigated injustice. This is the singular pleasure of reading these stories and then writing a foreword is that through even its most convoluted and warped turns, the rightness and justice of the law triumphed. That these stories affirm that narrative is a given. Their other joy is that they offer you, the reader, a new reason for revisiting our post-apartheid constitution so that you may appreciate anew the grand human achievement that it is. Thank you. It's very generous, Clonipa, but I think I'm reading it because you say it better than me. It took me a while to understand myself, but I think it's important and I think it still is relevant today. That's a beautiful intro. Are you writing an intro for my book too? (laughs) (laughs) I'm taking that as an invitation. (laughs) Uh, I'm fascinated by how people can work the legal system, as Richard was describing, to almost uh, against the grain of it to achieve some type of justice. But in my opinion, it's very much against the grain. I don't find a lot of rightness or joy in (laughs) In our legal system and how it works. I mean, I understand we're at very different sort of positionality in terms of South Africa versus the United States. But I think what connects the two stories is exactly that often, especially because in South Africa, we've also sort of kept the formality of the British system. So even in mm-hmm. post-apartheid South Africa. So for example, there was a whole part of your, I mean, it wasn't supposed to be funny, but in South Africa, a couple of years ago, the very concept of menseria became a huge issue in Jacob Zuma's rape trial. And for the first time, people discovered that the Latin terms are still used in the courtroom in South Africa today. And there were all sorts of media commentary about what menseria means. So when I read that part of your book, I thought, oh no, this is actually not the most appropriate moment to laugh. But it was kind of interesting that almost 300 years after your cases in South Africa, it became a humongous social media issue. I mean, people are putting it on taxis. You get all these <laughs> subjudicate people put the on the side of a taxi. <laughs> oh my goodness. Do you have pictures? I want to see this. 
these terms on a taxi. Please, 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 please I'll send them. To, I'll try. But the other day, literally, I saw a taxi with some Judy K on the side. And That's I just funny. thought, this, That's is, this is so hilarious. Right. But you're yeah. you're actually referring to a part in my book where, and oh my goodness, it was so hard to try to mm. make it clear for people who aren't legal scholars or lawyers. But the issue of mens rea versus actus reus was really important for figuring out why the Negro fiend was burned at the stake, whereas the other enslaved men who were captured were hung. And it had to do with this old British statute and then subsequent common law where you know, if a man murders a woman, his wife or whatever, it's murder. And if a woman murders her husband or her master, it's treason against the state. And so I was trying to explain that. And that has to do with breaking down the difference between mens rea and actus reus, because it's the same act. But the idea of a woman doing, you know, literally, you know, doing this, it's like, this is patriarchy, right? It's like men, they are the state and women are imputed to have the mens rea of treason. So that's fascinating. I, w- I want to see a taxi that says, what was that other one? Subjudicate. <laughs> Subjudicate. And it was all around the taxi, like at the oh, back wow. on the side. Wow. Oh my goodness. I need to see it. I'll print it out and put it as a poster on my wall. But And I was in Newcastle. So I'd have to travel all the way to KZN to try and find <laughs> that taxi. But in South Africa, all the hilarity of the country gets put on the taxis. So it's like they become a moving social commentary. That's great. On the issues of the day. So I'm going to ask you two questions together so that we can condense our last bits of the conversation. So the first question, and it's linked to this whole question of this legal turgidness of an inflexibility of often legal cases. And both of you chose to uh, include insertions or excerpts from court cases, documents, and archival material, how did you choose what material to include and what material to exclude? And then the second question is about choosing your illustrators. So how did you choose which illustrators to work with? Was this process as equally important as the written narratives? So the decision about what to include and not include for me, had everything to do with how can I recover the stories of these enslaved women and how can I help to understand and explain how these systems of domination work? And one of the places where I include a section of the court record for the revolt in 1712 is you look through a transcript and you hope to find the defendant saying something, talking, whatever, some insight into what they did, why they did it, why at that moment, what moved them to choose this. And and in the court records I was dealing with, I came across, I mean, first of all, reading that handwriting in 1700, it was just crazy. But, you know, this section where it's like Sarah, having said no more for herself than she had previously, we find her guilty and sentenced to whatever, burn at the stake or whatever it was in that case. And so I'm frantically thinking like, oh, my God, she said something and I missed it and, you know, ended up carefully going. And no, she didn't. They weren't even interested in recording what she had to say. That wasn't legally relevant. What was relevant is that she hadn't said anything different at this point in the proceedings. So that's an example of needing to look at how this erasure happens. And the other thing in terms of picking an illustrator, it's crucial. 
And for me, it was a very weird process because I had never done anything like this before. I had only ever written academic things, right? And so this was just a, you know, I had been fired for the third time from teaching, you know, where I'm asked to teach on race and then I teach race and then they fire me. It's a whole long story. But anyway, and I'm like, before I leave academia, what is it that I'm going to do? What is it that I regret? And I regretted that my dissertation was walled off behind this wall of academia where maybe five people had read it. So I wanted to try to to get it out there. And my thought was to do this graphic narrative. I also thought it was going to be this really small thing. We had a Kickstarter to raise $5,000. It was just like, um, but then it kind of blew up. But, you know, when I was looking for illustrators, a mutual friend introduced me to Hugo, who was working as a pedicab driver in New Orleans at the time. And when we got the book contract with Simon & Schuster, this became both of our full-time jobs. And he's just amazing. I feel like his work is brilliant. And it just got better and better and better. He'd never worked on a project this big before. And and Richard, you said something earlier where you talked about how, like, I'm all about having the, the text be sparse so the art can do its work. And you sat down and read it in one sitting. I mean, it's possible. People read it, the book, in like an hour or two hours or something. And it so much is about how to get the text to work with the art. And we were learning as we go. I'm so excited about our second book because I feel like we've learned so much. <laughs> but in terms of, you know, some things I designed and suggested, some things he did, some things we collaborated together. Um, so it was an incredible process. Uh, when you get my book, Rebecca, you'll see that uh, I wasn't so sparse on the text, which also means that I've learned from my mistakes and next time I'll do better. So don't judge me <laughs> too strongly. <laughs> in terms of the archival sources that we include in the book, I came at it more from a, a storyteller's perspective primarily, and that, you know, anyone who's spent enough time in an archive and has been, you know, hunting details of a story and then they suddenly come across a photograph of their protagonist and they feel like they're the first person in history who's ever done that that euphoric feeling i wanted to share it with the readers so i had a few of those i even in one case i found the clippings of a protagonist's hair wow because it was an article of evidence in his a trial of his his execution and in our case we actually combined a selection of archival sources for each story with preliminary sketches by the artist because I wanted it to be both for someone coming to the story through a sort of historical interest but also from an artistic side I wanted aspiring artists to see the process beneath the stories on both sides and in terms of choosing an artist well I I chose six or seven there's six chapters but one of them is by a pair of brothers that evolved naturally it's unorthodox but the more I did it the more I encountered the diversity and the stories and the different context, and also thinking about South Africa as the whole, the kind of country that we live in, it felt right to have a diverse group of artists, almost an uncomfortable mix of styles together. There was something very South African about that, I felt. And for me as an author, it was absolutely critical to have a different perspective. And I was very, very clear, and I hope the artists will say that I was like this, that the experience was like this for them, but I I really wanted them to feel like the canvas was theirs. Obviously, I was ultimately responsible for unearthing the story and providing the research and the script. I knew there was going to be inevitable blind spots. I was going to have shortcomings, particularly stories that I couldn't relate to because of my identity as a white male. And I was very selective in choosing artists who I thought would benefit the story by shining light on those, on those blind spots, but also who, who really had a, an obvious connection to the project. There had to be more motivation than just like a payment at the end of the process, because 
as you know, illustrating a story of this length, yours is one much longer story than my different parts, but it can be a very grueling process. And so there needs to be staying power and it has to come from somewhere. Right. And so, yeah, fortunately we got to the end with all six. Yeah, that's a good point because for me, I'm a, a grandchild of enslaved people. You know, my paternal grandparents were both born in 1860 in slavery. My connection to the material is very direct. I think my artist, Hugo Martinez, he's he's like a first-generation immigrant from, from Nicaragua, but his interest has always been about capturing story resistance. And so he definitely had the staying power for that. Do you both have anything else to add that you think perhaps our conversation hasn't covered? Something that you would like to put on the record as part of this transatlantic conversation? Yeah, first of all, I have always wanted to go to South Africa. I am trying to get there next calendar year, maybe 2023. So we have to stay in touch. And if folks are interested, they can follow me on Twitter at Wake Revolt. Are you on other social media platforms too? Just on Twitter. And I have my own website, which is at rebhallphd.org. How about you? I do Instagram and reluctantly, but I have an Instagram account both for myself, but also for All Rise, where, because a number of the artists are also on social media, so we can share things there. But yeah, just to say, I'm new to this world. I'm not an academic. I'm just a, a storyteller who came across some good stories. And I hope I have another opportunity to produce another book along similar lines. That's definitely my intention. And I learn a lot from other authors and illustrators, and I've learned a lot from Wake and for the Africans who are listening, and if they're interested in this genre, they really must get their hands on Wake before they get their hands on my book. Well, actually, no, they can read my book first because then they'll be less disappointed after reading Wake. That's, yeah, that's fine. Um, <laughs> but I hope it is in South African stores. So also, you know, it was published in the United States through Simon & Schuster and then Penguin Random House in the UK on the same day. And now it's coming out in seven languages. French, German, Turkish, Korean, Japanese, I just like, wow, like my mind is blown. Wow. Okay, so we can now do the tribute section. I would give both of you the opportunity if you'd like to offer a tribute to Andre and Irina. Okay. Andre and Irina, I, I read about you when I first heard your names, the invitation for this discussion, and I now have a sense of what you've been through. And in thinking of your courage and sacrifice as human rights defenders and also of your love for one another and your shared struggle as partners, I was thinking about a, a South African extract to share with you and I decided to choose a letter exchanged between two of South Africa's great freedom fighters, Winnie Madikizela Mandela and her then husband Nelson Mandela, during a time when they were both incarcerated for their resistance to the apartheid regime. I hope their words bring both of you strength and light on the other side of the world. This letter was written by Nelson to Winnie um, on the 23rd of, of June 1969, when Winnie was in Soweto, Johannesburg. And it, it includes an extract from an earlier letter that Winnie sent to Nelson. So I'm just going to read, read that. My darling, one of my precious possessions here is the first letter you wrote me on December 20th, 1962, shortly after my first conviction. During the last six and a half years, I read it over and over again, and the sentiments it expresses are as golden and fresh now as they were the day I received it. With the aspirations and views that you hold, 
and the role you are playing in the current battle of ideas. I have always known that you would be arrested sooner or later. But considering all that I have gone through, and I had somehow vaguely hoped that such a calamity would be deferred, and that you would be spared the misfortune and misery of prison life. Accordingly, when the news of your arrest reached me on May 17th, in the midst of feverish preparations for my finals, then only 25 days away, I was quite unprepared and felt cold and lonely. That you were free and able within limits to move about meant much to me. I looked forward to all your visits and to those of members of the family and friends which you organized with your characteristic ability and enthusiasm, to the lovely birthday, wedding anniversary, and Christmas cards which you never failed to send, and to the funds which in spite of difficulties you managed to raise. What made the disaster even more shattering was the fact that you had last visited me on December 21st, and I was actually expecting you to come down last month or in June. I was also waiting your reply to my letter of April 2nd in which I discussed your illness and made suggestions. For some time after receiving the news, my faculties seemed to have ceased functioning, and I turned almost instinctively to your letter, as I have always done in the past, whenever my resolution flagged, or whenever I wanted to take away my mind from nagging problems. Now he quotes Winnie. Most people do not realize that your physical presence would have meant nothing to me if the ideals for which you have dedicated your life have not been realized. I find living in hope the most wonderful thing. Our short lives together, my love, have always been full of expectation. In these hectic and violent years, I've grown to love you more than I ever did before. Nothing can be as valuable as being part and parcel of the formation of the history of a country. And then he goes on. These are some of the gems this marvelous letter contains. And after going through it on May 17th, I felt once more on top of the world. Disasters will always come and go, leaving their victims either completely broken or steeled and seasoned and better able to face the next crop of challenges that may occur. It is precisely at the present moment that you should remember that hope is a powerful weapon and one no power on earth can deprive you of, and that nothing can be as valuable as being part and parcel of the history of a country. That's really powerful. I just wanted to say before I read a segment from a poem, so I got exposed to the work that Penn does when I became a finalist for Penn's Open Book Award. And I am so inspired by the work that they do around issues of censorship and protecting journalists and others from state persecution. And the tribute that I want to offer, though, is specifically to um, Black women and in the United States, although I think it'll resonate with other Black women, it's a short segment from a long poem by June Jordan that's called A Poem About My Rights. And what speaks to me, and I hope speaks to others, is how she moves through the horrible degradation of being a Black woman in America and moves from that to the point of really powerful resistance. So I'm just reading like the last couple paragraphs. Because I have been wrong, the wrong sex, the wrong age, the wrong skin, the wrong nose, the wrong hair, the wrong need, the wrong geographic, the wrong sartorial, I have been the meaning of rape. I have been the problem everyone seeks to eliminate by forced penetration with or without the evidence of slime. And, but let this be unmistakable. This poem is not consent. I do not consent to my mother, to my father, 
to the teachers, to the FBI, to South Africa, to Bedford-Stuy, to Park Avenue, to American Airlines, to the hardened idlers on the corners, to the sneaky creeps in cars. I am not wrong. Wrong is not my name. My name is my own, my own, my own. And I can't tell you who the hell set things up like this, but I can tell you that from now on, my resistance, my simple and daily and nightly self-determination may very well cost you your life. June Jordan. Thank you both for those very profound tributes. My own tribute is a very simple one in the sense that I don't want to speak over what you both have said. So my words to Andre and Irina are that you are joining a very august audience and august history of people who have been jailed and incarcerated and tortured and denied counsel by an oppressive regime. And throughout that history, there has always been that moment of grace, that moment of triumph, that moment of victory. And I can only hope that it comes sooner rather than later. And that will be my tribute to you. And I think both Rebecca and Richard have given you the, the words of comfort from that long history. And I hope that they will offer you not just comfort, but a reason to face the future after this painful period. Thank you very much to both Richard and Rebecca for joining me for this conversation. It was insightful, uh, it was beautiful, and it was inspiring. Thank you very much to Penn South Africa for having me today. Uh, Felipe, it's great to see you again. Uh, Rebecca, it's wonderful to meet you and chat to both of you about our work. And I hope to see you all again. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much to Kronipa, Rebecca and Richard for this rousing and scintillating conversation. Join us again next week for a new episode of Season 4 of The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. This episode was produced by Andrew Burnett with the assistance of Fasti Kalitz. Thanks to our podcast project executive producer, Lara Buxbaum, to the Penn South Africa board members, Kate Hyman, Yawande Omatoza, and the whole of the board of Penn SA, and especially to our interns. And thanks too to Amy Bell Molautzi and Jahan Jones Radgowski for their support. Join us again next week for a new episode of season four of The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. If you want more information about our work on protecting freedom of expression and free speech and our solidarity with imprisoned rises across the globe, please visit www.pensouthafrica.co.za. This podcast series is funded by a grant from the U.S. Embassy in South Africa to promote open conversations and highlight shared histories. The podcast lineup is determined by Penn South Africa, and so the views expressed by our participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the policies of the United States government. Thank you so much for listening.